Hi, everyone. I'm Jack Cushwood Room now. Welcome to the ULAR 2023 Daily Recap. It's day three here in Milan, and I have with me my friends and colleagues, and we're going to discuss some of the highlights of today's meeting. Um, during this session, we're going to each review about two of our favorite abstracts, have the discussion on the impact of this data on practice and what we currently know about those subjects. Um, and let's begin. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now from Dallas, Texas. Anthony? I'm Anthony Chan. I'm, I'm from London, United Kingdom. And Yus? Hello, my name is uh, Yusuf. I'm a rheumatologist uh, from Leeds, United Kingdom. All right, so we are here in Milan, although right now we hustled back from the meeting to get to our hotel room so that we could do this Zoom recording for you. Um, Use, why don't you start us off with what you thought was a highlight from today? Yeah, so I would like to um, highlight about uh, some of the data from SLE trials. I think it's been quite exciting. Uh, the past two days, we had uh, data pertaining phase three positive results of uh, teletachycept. Uh, we also had a uh, positive phase two results uh, of upadacitinib uh, and also uh, ayanolumab. Um, so on day three today, so we had uh, a first uh, uh, first in-class uh, therapy uh, called zetomipozomib. Uh, yeah, it's quite difficult to announce. Sounds like bortezomib. Um, so the the, uh, the poster uh, number is one one two eight. So this is a smaller scale uh, phase two a study. Um, so zetomipozomib uh, is uh, an immune uh, proteasome uh, inhibitors. Um, so it acts on um, quite diverse uh, cells, both uh, innate and uh, um, uh, adaptive immunity, uh, working on macrophage uh, B cell and T cells. Um, so in this uh, trial, so they are looking in terms of patient with active lupus nephritis, uh, grade, uh, three, class three or four, uh, plus minus uh, five. Um, so the primary uh, endpoint um, uh, was 50% uh, reduction in uh, proteinuria. Um, so they recruited uh, 17 uh, patients uh, uh, and at uh, 26 uh, week, um, so uh, just over a half of the patient uh, uh, met the, the primary endpoint. And when they look a uh, little bit more detail in terms of a higher uh, hurdle endpoint, which is a complete renal response, which usually uh, defined by uh, less than 0.5 gram uh, per day proteinuria, uh, plus uh, stabilization of uh, creatinine EGFR and reduction of steroid less than 10 milligram uh, per day. Uh, so this is also quite good, it's about around uh, 35%. So one thing that people are asked about, you know, if it's a proteasome, so people are concerned that uh, potentially in a treatment with uh, bortezomib, for instance, because it acts on the plasma uh, cell depletion, whether this could lead uh, to uh, low IgG and serious infection. Uh, however, when I spoke to the investigator today, they said, uh, you know, it, does, it doesn't you know, act on the plasma cell uh, depletion. Uh, hence, uh, in this uh, small study, uh, there, there, were no, there were no low IgG and serious infection uh, recorded. Um, so so it's still early, so uh, they're now recruiting for phase 2B study, which is slightly larger, uh, and hopefully if there's a you know, more promising signal, they will then proceed with phase 3 uh, globally. So use this is a, a very early study. It's, a, it's open label, it's 17 patients. It's, um, so those are encouraging, um, it's an encouraging start, but what can you realistically take away from this 
um, other than you want to now see phase two data. Was there anything else about this study that gives you um, new hope for this slightly different or new mechanism of action? Yeah, I think, uh, right, Jack, yeah, it's um, the new mechanism of action because uh, it acts both uh, in innate and also adaptive uh, immunity. So I think it is a new thing compared to the one that we've got so far from the vocosporin uh, and, and, and belimumab for the lupus nephritis. So are you, um, I want to get you, you're, you're a lupus guy. You do a lot of lupus research and, and, and your knowledge about these, these trials and whatnot. And, and I'm a rheumatoid guy and I look at the lupus data and I'm just always a little disappointed because I have great hope in phase two where things look good, but then things sort of never look as good and, and the drugs fail in phase three, like for instance, baricitinib or ustekinumab. Um, where is the trip up? Is the trip up in that the outcome measures don't allow them to succeed? Is the trip up that they're going for a general lupus indication as opposed to what these folks look like they may be going after, which is a smarter, easier, more direct lupus nephritis indication? What would be your advice going forward in developing trials like this? Yeah, so I think I think probably much uh, all of the above that you mentioned, Jack. Uh, so I think the problem with uh, you know, clinical trials before, you know, like a decade ago, uh, I think a lot of problem with the trial design. Uh, especially uh, the inappropriate use of uh, you know, meaningful endpoints, which we have now improved uh, and we have learned from our mistakes, and also the use of active comparators. So I think in the past, you know, uh, you know, we use really high dose steroids, so that's why we got really high placebo response. Whereas these days, uh, for example, when you try like vocosporin and lupus nephritis, you can see like you know they started on 25 milligram daily of prednisolone, and by week 16, everyone below five milligram per day. So because of that, uh, they can minimize the, um, you know, the, the placebo response there. So I think uh, these days, uh, even the composite endpoints, uh, apart from like SRI4 or BICLA, uh, you know, uh, most recent trials that currently become positive, they also included reduction of steroid as well. So I think, uh, you know, some, a, a cause for optimism there. Anthony, what do you think of this kind of research? Is it helpful to the rheumatologist? I, I certainly think so. I think we need uh, we need certainly a lot of new uh, therapies uh, in in conditions uh, like lupus and Sjogren's. I remember uh, from from the last meeting, uh, this was uh, very much in development. It's good to see that this has uh, come along, but again, small numbers, and I think uh, the patient selection is going to be quite important because um, with lupus studies, um, antibody positivities, um, you know, have has a strong impact on how these uh, patients may respond. True, true. Okay, so Anthony, what's your favorite one from today? I've, uh, I've had a great day looking at rheumatoid arthritis and also uh, JAK inhibitors. Uh, there's a lot at this uh, meeting uh, coming uh, on the back of oral surveillance. Um, numerous posters, I'm sorry, but the two that are, or the main one I would today was the jackpot study. Uh, that's OP219, uh, which is a composite of 14 rheumatoid arthritis registers, 50 or 1,000 patients, um, DAS 28 score, active disease 4.1 to 4.7 across the TNF, uh, other modes of action, and also the, uh, the JAK inhibitors. And uh, the reassuring data was uh, the incidence uh, rate per 1,000 patient years was came out at 1.76 for JAK inhibitors and 1.86 for the TNF inhibitors. Now, of course, these were not uh, particularly enriched populations compared to the, uh, the oral surveillance, but uh, 
uh, in the general population, the patients that we treat with rheumatoid arthritis, uh, this, uh, this signal is uh, reassuring for us. Uh, and also the subsequent to this, there was a Dutch uh, group that also published very similar things today, uh, and that's OP221. So I think this, uh, in terms of clinical practice, um, doesn't stop us from still assessing our patients carefully, the older patient above the age of 65, the smoker, cardiovascular risk, but at least I think it just uh, allows me to consider uh, in, in those patients who perhaps have used many of the other drugs that Jack could still be a possible uh, treatment option. Yeah. You know, um, there are a lot of studies, as uh, Dr. Chan points out, at this meeting that are designed to answer the question, was oral surveillance uh, and its takeaway messages real? Should we really worry about that? Prior to oral surveillance, all of the studies that examine the issues of cardiovascular risk and um, cancer were negative, and they were just like this. They're registries, they're long-term extension studies, they're meta-analyses, they're reanalyses of the original data set that got the drug approved where there was no signal seen. But that's why the FDA required a post-marketing regulatory requirement, requirement to do this phase four safety study called oral surveillance, which by the way, was a four year, 4,500 patient with you know, randomization, blinding endpoints, really clear, um, clear questions to which it gave us an answer that we can argue about as we have for the last almost two, a year and a half. But now we got all these reports like jackpot and the Dutch study and the Korean study from yesterday and I see at least three or four others that basically take large data sets and they reconstruct their data set so it meets the enrollment criteria of oral surveillance they have by age and by having a cardiovascular risk factor. They don't necessarily recreate disease activity that was seen in oral surveillance. And they don't necessarily recreate you know, what prior therapies they had failed to get to where they were so they're not going to be the same, and they just read out what happened. The problem is a lot of them, I'm sorry I'm going to go off on this because I obviously have an opinion, but they don't have the exposure of four-plus years of, of the drugs that we're talking about, and we know you need long exposure on JAKs and TNFs to get a benefit on cardiovascular event reduction and maybe even on malignancy event reduction or modulation. And I'll point out that the jackpot study, which was, as you said, 15 registries um, from all over the world, actually have 20 registries, and they're, <coughs> they're going to complete their data set. You know, they had an admirable effort that basically showed no difference between the jacks and the TNF inhibitors. But it suffers when you ask the one big question I asked, which is, in this study, jackpot, they took it, the patients who were on JAK inhibitors and TNF inhibitors and OMAs, other mechanism of action biologics. And they had three large cohorts and they followed them forward and they compared them. In each of the cohorts, they had between 12 and 20,000 patient years of exposure, which was really more than about two years of exposure. But even with that much exposure, the number of actual cardiac events was 60 to 80 per group. That's incredibly low, very, very low to the point it almost negates the effect of the study. And when I asked that question of 
Dr. Orion, Romain Orion, who did a great job and did a lot of work on this, he didn't really have a good answer. And he basically said, these are the limitations of registries. You don't know how they're getting to where they get. They don't all fill out the same form. Sometimes these are handwritten in narrative notes as opposed to check boxes on there was a cardiovascular event and scoring of it. So this is the limitations of what you get. And when you have these analyses that are designed to look like oral surveillance, I'm just going to say they're not oral surveillance and hence they can't really stack up. You want to really show that oral surveillance wasn't right, then you're going to have to spend a lot of money, a lot of time. And, um, and who knows, maybe if oral surveillance was done again, it may be just like the gout studies with Fabuxistat. There are four studies with Fabuxistat that ping pong back and forth as to whether Fabuxistat or allopurinol has a greater cardiovascular risk. And what's the real story? Patients with gout are a mess. They've got lots mm -hmm. of inflammation. They have high event rates. They're all going to get renal disease and diabetes and heart disease. And, you know, it's just a mess. And so it's a roll of the dice when you do a 5,000 patient trial over 20 months as to what may in fact happen. And that's in fact did happen with starting with the confirmed study and ending with CARES and the last one that was just done in gout. I think the same thing would happen with oral surveillance if we did it again. It might give you a totally different result, but you're nonetheless stuck with the results of those studies. And the story we're telling ourselves as rheumatologists may not be the right story because you want to kind of stick to your guns on what you're doing when the data really is dictating, as you know, with the EMA and with Canada and, and with the United States and the FDA, they changed the rules on jack inhibitor use. We have to live with it. Use what do you think? You're on. You're you're also in the UK. How do you, how do you look at this kind of data? Yeah, so I think uh, you know, echoing to what you said earlier, I think you know, once recently we've received like notification from the EMA that we have to be you know you know cautious on these patients in above sixty five uh, had a history malignancy and. Um, and also VTE. So um, in terms of practice wise, it does impact, you know, the prescribers, like we start to, to think and, you know, so before this, you know, when the, you know, Jack came out and everything's like, you know, good and wonderful. And now we are, you know, sl slowly getting more cautious and we start more personalized, you know, treatments to, to you know, those people, you know, patients who are not uh, on those categories. So like you say, you know, time will tell, you know, when we have, you know, more further you know, follow-ups so that we can justify, you know, this reversal of, uh, you know, EMA mandatory uh, notification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Anthony, what would your advice be as far as um, how we can look at data that may make us feel better about Jax? Do you think that registries like this are the way to go or is there another way? I don't know if there really is another way other than spending the money to do a really large trial. Yeah, I think I think um, we, we, we uh, registries are useful, but um, they suffer from, um, uh, you know, recording issues. Uh, you, you know, we may not always record everything uh, that the patient has. Uh, and also the, uh, the effect of if we start putting out these warnings, we will get a channeling bias. So we will start putting people with very low risks uh, in the registries because we've been told not to use this in a particular group. So the registry itself may not actually pick up when prescribing patterns have changed due to either uh, rules around uh, the use of the drug. Um, and this goes back to the question about 
understanding the methodology in, in oral surveillance versus the uh, registries. But, you know, we have to make the individual discussion at the end with our patients as to, you know, how suitable or how safe they are to go into a trap like this. Yeah, the, the one, while I may have overly critiqued this tremendous effort that they've made here, uh, I will point out the great point that Dr. Arian made was a lot of the registry data that was recorded was in fact recorded before the results of the oral surveillance came out. So while the registry may have been faulted across the board for its reporting, maybe underreporting, at least it's consistent across the 14 registries and the three classes of drugs. And their end message may still be exactly right, that there was no difference between these three classes of drugs when it came to MACE events and whether we need to worry about that when we choose and uh, a TNF inhibitor, JAK inhibitor, or a biologic that has another mechanism of action. So that the, the, the end message may be still the same, albeit for um, some of the faults of the study rather than some of the strengths of the study. I don't know. Yeah. Um, Anthony, were you going to discuss the, the rheumatoid factor paper from um, Austria, or do you want me, is it okay if I talk, talk about that? Yeah, go, go, go ahead with that. Uh, in fact, I, I had another one separate to that one, so okay. you can hear. Yeah, so um, Dan Alataha's group um, presented uh, an interesting report that I don't know what to do with, and maybe my friends can um, make it clear for me. It was presented by um, Victoria Consett, and it, the title was the early response of in rheumatoid factor uh, levels predicts subsequent clinical response on DMARDs in RA. The bottom line here being that they took a 2000 patient RA cohort and followed them uh, with repeated clinical measures of outcome and efficacy, things that you normally do. But they also did repeated rheumatoid factors I wanted to ask the question, but you're limited in questions these days. Why did they hang their hat on rheumatoid factor here as opposed to ACPA, which mm -hmm. seems to have more uh, impact on act activity, worsening, et cetera. But nonetheless, they looked at rheumatoid factor at, potentially as a biomarker in this Vienna um, rheumatoid arthritis cohort. And what they tried to say what they was, can you look at rheumatoid factor as an outcome measure, if your outcome is that rheumatoid factor goes down significantly or becomes negative, so a drop of 50% or more, or converting to seronegativity, you are then called a rheumatoid factor responder. And this was across the board, looking at many different um, drugs. They didn't give you any drug information. I found that somewhat disappointing. They didn't give you, they did say, that there was very little rituximab in play on this. I found that to be useful and helpful. The, um, and when they looked at the patients, you know, um, going rheumatoid factor negative, the number was something like 30% by six months became rheumatoid factor negative. Now, what I've, I've actually, I have a lecture on seropositive, seronegative RA saying that there are only a few drugs that really lower rheumatoid factor, rituximab, yeah. um, uh, abatacept, and JAK inhibitors. TNF inhibitors don't, IL-6 inhibitors do not, and they included conventional um, synthetic DMARDs, methotrexate, leflunamide, et cetera. We do not think of those as lowering rheumatoid factor, but yet 
in their cohort, 30% of their patients across the board had a drop in their rheumatoid factor, and that predicted a better outcome. They then wanted to say that, what if you considered this like a treat-to-target measure? When they did a comparative analysis of, of different treat-to-target measures, they said that STI, the Simplified Disease Activity Index, that is tender joint count, swollen joint count, um, what is it, PGA and uh, Physician Global and uh, and CRP, CDI does not have the CRP, SDI does have the CRP, that the CDI was a better predictor of uh, achieving a low disease activity state, but not be far behind it was this, the rheumatoid factor responder with if you were a rheumatoid factor responder, you had a 13% greater chance of getting treat to target or getting to LDA. Now that's significant, but is it big? I don't know. She didn't tell me how big the SDI response was, and she couldn't tell me what would happen if we just applied the same rule to CRP. So the question is, based on this data, should you, Anthony, and you use be doing rheumatoid factor quarterly or every six months on your patients and using this as a biomarker? Are you really doing something important and smart? Are you driving up the cost of care needlessly? Um, and again, they only looked at patients who were seropositive, who had moderate to high disease. You don't usually start out thinking patients based on their death score and where category they're in and would you not be applying the same thing? And then the other question is, as uh, John Giles asked from the microphone, is this lowering significant when you go from 40 to 20 in rheumatoid factor as opposed to going from 400 to 200? Um, and again, no answers were had. So I'll now pose the, the, the pithy question to my colleagues, what would you do with this data? Or so Anthony, what would you do? I, I think I do, yeah, a very nice presentation from today. Uh, I don't I don't think we understand the scale of this. Firstly, what percentage reduction does this impact? Uh, this this has to be very high before we can see an effect. And secondly, the effect of the drugs. Uh, you know, are you measuring the effect of the drug, uh, or is this part of the disease? The same argument we had with the IL six, with the effect on CRP, and then using this CRP as a measurement, perhaps was not as a, a good good marker when there's a biological effect on the very thing that you're using as the measure. Uh, would that also, the rituximab, for example, I know in the study they said small numbers, but if that affects the rheumatoid factor and may not necessarily affect the disease, we don't really know that. Uh, we don't serially measure it, so this would this would result in a, in a, in a change of practice if it were go to, to go this way. And could there be a better way, as you say, could it just be just as good to measure CRP, which is what we're doing now, rather than to go for this? And would the same be for ACPA? So, uh, we have right. always used this as prognostic factors, prognostication rather than as a treatment effect. So this this changes it if we are to go this way and might drive up the cost. But if it does, then it might be cost saving in the long term. You could say measure it for the first 12 months and that would be a, a measure of the efficacy of the treatment that you're giving the patient. You know, I, I must say in my teaching over the years, when rheumatologists are done, are using serial serologies or doing serologies at every visit, I usually yell at them saying, oh, what are you doing? That's kind of stupid what you're doing. And, 
and or it's greedy, meaning you're doing it because you own the lab and you're just channeling business into your own lab. But there's no good reason to do that repeatedly because generally these titers don't change or zero positivity is to go into zero negativity is an uncommon it's an uncommon phenomenon. Although when it happens, it's good. There are reports showing that it's good. But again, why do that? So uh, I'm kind of feeling guilty about being so hard on my colleagues and my fellows about doing serial um, serologies. But um, what do you think of this data? Yeah, so I think interesting that um, in the study that uh, only less people were on rituximab. So uh, we, we do a lot of studies in um, uh, B cells and, and, and rituximab in leads. So what um, I've uh, did uh, analyze uh, some of our early cohorts of rheumatoid arthritis um, treated on rituximab. Um, when initially I tried to uh, derive like a model prediction that, um, that we can use to predict uh, response and relapse. Um, so the initial cycle, I mean, this is the, the study that we present and EULA a few years ago, but I didn't get around to formally published it because I think it is complex. I think, you know, to do a modeling in, in rheumatoid arthritis, the biomarkers is quite complex compared to other diseases. You know, I must say like lupus is actually potentially quite easier than, than rheumatoid, um, uh, you know, treated rituximab. So um, what we found uh, in terms of uh, the predictors um, of uh, you know, poor response, if you have a higher disease, you know, DAS28 squad baseline, if you have a higher uh, plasma blast, uh, which we measured using highly sensitive flow cytometry, uh, you know, in, in, in leads, uh, and also uh, high tighter rheumatic factor as well. So actually, um, when we measure it, um, the first cycle, um, so basically if you do have, a, you know, we, we measured the... Oh, we have a hang up. He's leaving us in suspense. If you measure... Okay. So user is going to have to uh, come back in. Um, yes. uh, are you there, Yus? All right. Let's go around. Let's do our second round uh, of of abstracts. Anthony, what's uh, what's your next one? The next one was uh, also a, a nice oral presentation. Was uh, this is on uh, glucocorticoids, and this was about uh, bridging uh, therapy at the start of treatment. Thirty-five weeks of uh, glucocorticoids uh, and did that impact on the long term? Firstly, the long-term use of glucocorticoids, and secondly, whether it had a long-term effect on uh, uh, outcome measures, DAS28. And they found that um, those who had bridging at the start uh, tended to use more glucocorticoids in the first 12 months. They got better response at six months, but after that 12-month period, they, they, they equal out between those who had the bridging and those who didn't. So uh, it, it kind of comes to the question, should we be using a lot of these uh, glucocorticoids at the start of, uh, of treatments uh, in our patients um, uh, in, because it seems like there was no real difference after the 12 month. although they did say that they had a fewer DMAR changes longer term if they had bridge, uh, bridging therapy with glucocorticoids. Did they look at stopping steroids in, in those, these cohorts? Yeah, they did. So they, they tried to come uh, stop the steroids at 12 months, uh, but they tended to stay on them for longer if you had the bridging therapy um, compared to those who didn't. So that's the argument here that, you know, if you, you steroids are great, but are you gonna stop steroids? I, my main rant right now is the great quote from Peter Merkel that steroids are the best drug we have, the worst drug we have, and that you shouldn't use a, a steroid 
unless you have a built-in expiration date. I'm going to give you this drug. I'm going to give you this drug for 10 weeks and only 10 weeks. Otherwise, you're dealing with the consequences of steroids being the easy answer to any hard question you have in management. And uh, I, I like this data, but it sort of works. Um, and I think this data is true about what people really do. Mm. But at the same time, that doesn't make it right. And there's a, uh, a report tomorrow from uh, the Mayo Clinic um, group. Um, there's a report tomorrow on from the Mayo Clinic group, but also about use of steroids chronically. And it looked at two different eras um, and showed that the more recent era, you would think with more aggressive therapies being made available, that there would be less steroid use and less steroid continuations. But in fact, you know, if you look at, I want to say 2000 to 2008, and then compare 2009 to 2018, steroid use went up. They were not statistically different, but they went up. And then even worse was the fact that elderly patients were more likely to be starting steroids. Elderly patients were also more likely to be st not stopping steroids. So they're, the, those are people you don't want on steroids, but yet they're more likely to get them and then stay on them. And then even though we have all these drugs in the second era, the latest era, 30% of patients are still taking steroids in spite of being on other therapies. This is all the Mayo Clinic data, uh, and they're basically saying the same thing, that um, should you be rethinking your your strategy? Uh, again, uh, both Anthony and Yust are practicing in the UK um, and are a little bit more familiar with the UR guidelines on RA management. And I'll tell you, my looking at those two, too, I want to hear what you guys think about the UR guidelines and the steroid data. But the American guidelines um, from the ACR say, don't use steroids. If you do use steroids, you got to go off steroids. But don't use steroids. Did I tell you again? Don't use steroids. I mean, it says it over and over and over and over again. But when Dr. Smolin presented the, U the ULAR guidelines last year uh, at, the, at this meeting, he did a, like almost a 15-minute presentation. Nine minutes of it are why you should be on steroids uh, and why it's okay to start on steroids and then have the, the goal of stopping steroids as soon as you can in the future. So it seems that the ULAR guidelines are more permissive, that the paper that uh, Anthony you just pre pre presented are more permissive. The Mayo Clinic data shows we are being permissive, although I, don't, I think their, their slant was they didn't like it. So does, uh, how do you guys deal with steroids in RA patients in your practice? Not use them, only use them a little bit, or like using them? Uh, we only use them for a little bit and, um, sorry, use, I use, um, and um, have an expiration date, very important. So we give them not more than four to six weeks while we are, you know, starting them up on their, on their disease modifying therapy. Um, there is still a tendency to use them in people who are older. That's because of the monitoring and they don't require sort of regular blood tests and it's hard to get them done in that population. I think that's why these choices are made, but they are. Uh, you know, um, not without risk. I, I remember your poster that you made about uh, scary steroids. Uh, so it's something that uh, our medical students look at and think it's maybe we should be considering newer therapies for these patients. All right. Use what do you do? 
Yeah, apologies earlier. Uh, I've got a, a cutoff in the hotel. So I think to just to answer to my uh, conversation before, I wouldn't advocate repeating um, rheumatoid factors. So I think okay. that from my yeah, opinion. Um, yeah, so in terms of steroids, so um, we use uh, intramuscular steroid quite a lot uh, from the in the beginning uh, when you first diagnose. Uh, and uh, you know, then after that, we in patient with like severe disease, we do you know give some uh, oral prednisolone on top of the intramuscular steroid. But like Anthony was saying, um, you know, we do have expiry date, so we make sure like you know we taper down, you know, uh, you know once they're more established on the DMARDs. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I like the idea that the intramuscular steroids really come with an expiration date. It's not like they can continue to take it or continue to abuse it, which happens with an oral prescription. Do you have a second shorty that you want to present? Yes, uh, sure. Um, so I, mean, I know we talked about uh, Jack earlier. Uh, I thought I was trying to uh, stay away from it, but actually I've prepared <laughs> another presentation uh, you know, pertaining to Jack, but maybe for a, a bit more positive spin. So it's an oral presentation, OP0225. So this is a study uh, trying to see the uh, efficacy of uh, adjuvant recombinant herpes doctor vaccination, the Shingrix. Uh, in a uh, patient treated with upadacitinib. Um, so essentially this uh, 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 a trial from select compare trial uh, for following the initial trials, they went to the um, uh, long-term study. Um, so what happened, um, so there were the 95 patients uh, were treated both on upadacitinib uh, plus methotrexate because obviously we, we think like if you have like dual combination, they may put increased risk of herpes of the, uh, the reactivation. Um, so in this uh, study, um, so these patients were, giving, uh, were given uh, two courses of the Shingrix, uh, one at uh, baselines uh, at the point of the long-term extension, and then they checked the marker uh, for cellular uh, and also humoral response uh, at uh, four weeks after that. And then uh, three months, they give another course and check another uh, you know, marker of the response as well four weeks later. So the outcome, um, uh, the endpoint is uh, at that 16 weeks, really. Um, so what they found uh, in terms of cellular response, uh, so patients uh, who were on uh, upadacitinib and also methotrexate, um, in the initial one, uh, the first course, so six, about 64% people had a, a, a positive response. And then after it increased to about 88% uh, after the second dose, uh, and also the cellular response. So overall, there about two thirds of the patient had a cellular response. So this is in terms of uh, the both cellular and also um, human response. How about the clinical implication? I think that's the most important thing. I know it was like a quite a short uh, follow up. So they didn't find any um, herpes uh, zoster uh, reactivation uh, during the observation. Uh, and uh, importantly, only two out of ninety five. So I think that's probably about two percent people uh, had a flare up of rheumatoid arthritis in a post. Um, uh, so vaccination. So I think this is really uh, crucial uh, data, uh, you know, and will give you give us you know start assurance in terms of like in the short term after we give the shin rigs, uh, that it can actually prevent uh, you know people from getting herpes as a result of vaccination. Yeah. yeah, this is really interesting and it's very germane. Um, I give a lot, I use a lot of jack inhibitors. I don't write a prescription for a jack inhibitor unless I'm writing a prescription for shin rigs at the same time. Um, do I give them the same time? Do I have to wait? I don't. Um, the patient's already on it. Uh, a, a jack inhibitor, I'll go and get the Shingrix. Uh, mm -hmm. Ideally, I'd like them not to be on it. This problem, this study that you report, which shows pretty good results as far as responsiveness, 
80% plus humor response, 66%, you know, cell mediated immune responses. It's good, but it's not as good as the normal population. And the problem is they're on methotrexate, which is the one drug along with rituximab known to screw up all immune responses with vaccination. Doesn't matter which vaccine. It, it, it blunts it tremendously. So you're really not left with information since everybody was on methotrexate and on a JAK inhibitor. You're really not knowing what to do with the JAK inhibitor per se. The answer to the question, you want better responses, don't be on methotrexate, do the park thing of holding the methotrexate for two weeks or one week based on more recent data. Uh, and then, you know, and then restart it after well, at least, you know, one week later. Um, but I think that they need to do this kind of research again, this time with controls and with a population that's not on a background of methotrexate. It was convenient because it was an extension of, you said, the select compare study. So I thought that was pretty interesting, but it still is instructive. I think this does help us inform us, but the, you're still left wondering, do I have to stop the JAK inhibitor or not? Uh, based on no data, or I shouldn't say that, based on my interpretation of available data, I don't hold a JAK inhibitor when I'm giving Shingrix. I don't hold a JAK inhibitor when I'm giving influenza. I didn't hold a JAK inhibitor when I was giving the COVID virus, even though the ACR later came out a little bit too late, I must say, and said you probably should hold it. Um, that's based on expert opinion and not really based on any strong evidence, but we're still learning. And remember that vaccination is about risk reduction. So these, these things are never going to be 100% correct. That's one of the great things about the COVID and the Shingrix vaccine is that they're 90% effective, but they're not 100% effective. And then how you use them, the circumstances and all that, who knows where, you know, what may happen. But this data I thought was pretty encouraging. I want to uh, present just a really quickie on infertility uh, amongst men who are... Um, uh, who have inflammatory arthritis. This is a study of 10,000 men from Norway, uh, and it was presented today. I want to say I was a little disappointed, thinking I was going to learn a lot in this whole, in this thing. I didn't learn a lot, but they basically had, you know, um, two populations that they looked at, uh, and they, and they looked at infertility in several ways. And these are men with, with arthritis and autoimmune inflammatory disease. And they looked at fertility as, a me as being measured by how many children each man had. And, they, and, and the, the arthritis patients were compared to a much larger control group. And it turns out that male patients with arthritis actually had more children than did the controls. The controls 1.7, the patients 1.8, and that was highly significant. So yeah, they're fertile. Congratulations, whoopee. But now it gets confusing when she looks at the percentage of men who were childless and well shouldn't it be that since they're more fertile that that shouldn't be the issue no it has to that has to do with want to get pregnant and tries to get pregnant and as opposed to can or cannot get a pregnant and it turns out that being childless was much more common um uh i'm sorry was more common in the controls and less common in patients controls 27 percent were childless and uh, patients were 21%. So I guess that goes along with fertility. But if you look at those percentages, um, the number of people who are getting childless went up each decade, but the relative proportions were the same between the control group and the, uh, the control group being um, the non-arthritis patients and 
you know, I'm looking at these numbers. Um, yeah, I'm, I think I just got that wrong. The comparison group. Okay, so let's go back. Uh, fertility measured by how many children they had for each man was higher in the arthritis patients. But being childless was higher in the arthritis patients. And, and I didn't know what that meant, but since the percentages of childless went up by each decade, and it really got even more significant in the last decade of, of 2000 to 2021 um, with greater spread, I think that means with greater availability of drugs, men with arthritis, especially biologic drugs, are more reluctant to get pregnant. And whether they're reluctant or whether their female partners are reluctant to have a child uh, from a, um, a man who's taken some crazy dapaguzumab that nobody can, can pronounce, Lord knows what it does to your, your, your loins and, and whatnot. Um, I think that the, and I know this from other studies that I was involved in with fellows at our center at UT Southwestern, when you ask women they have a whole lot of fears about their ability to conceive, whether they should conceive, and whether they could actually have a normal, healthy baby in the future. And this diverts them from having children, having families, getting married, staying married, you know, and these are conversations we don't have. So I don't know, you, you, you deal with this probably more in lupus patients. Do Is, is this something you discuss? Well, to, to the men, uh... Or to the female. <laughs> well, when you're women, let's say, but certainly, I, I'm certain none of us are discussing it with the men. Now we have some information, but but what do you? How do you handle these issues with women? Do you do you bring it up? Should you bring it up? Should you be better at bringing it up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We do. Yeah. So um, in in our clinic, because I do both uh, lupus and children dedicated clinic. Um, so I do discuss. Uh, you know, because you know they are you know the peak age of um, you know onset is between twenty to forty years old at the most you know reproducible age um so yeah so we do discuss about you know fertility uh and also you know for instance like in children as well we we ask about you know intercourse you know vaginal dryness and so forth and and i'm really frank with uh you know and open you know to my patients to discuss about this and to support them as well appropriately you know i i would expect that especially since you you have those clinics female dominant many of them being uh, of childbearing age uh Anthony's really an expert in spondylitis, so he sees a lot more men. Anthony, yeah. I'm not even going to ask you whether you discuss this with your men. I want to know how you're going to handle this in the future when you talk to men who may want to get pregnant. Yeah, we we, we do discuss about uh, about this. Um, clearly, uh, it's more for them about more about their pain management and their pain control, and how active they are in, in the in the context of all of uh, you know life uh, planning. But also, interestingly, uh, the whole question about in the rheumatoid, particularly the, the male patients on metotrexate, which again was there was an interesting presentation today about how the um, fallout, um, you know, um, polyglutamate synthetase activities reduce uh, in, um, in, um, in, the, in the sperm and therefore reducing the metotrexate or polyglutamate levels and perhaps suggesting that it's a bit safer than what we've um, been brought up to think that you have to stop the metotrexate before trying. So I think there are a lot of things like this, um, you know, that that perhaps influence uh, some of the decision making for people to who want to get uh, try for family. Yeah. All right, gents, this was a great discussion. Thank you so much for your time and your insights on these really interesting abstracts from ULR 2023. To our audience, please be sure to tune in tomorrow. Um, 
Dr. David Liu and Bella Mehta will be discussing their favorite abstracts from the last day, day four of ULAR 2022. Tune in to room 